At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Guizueta Business School, and your host. Today, I'll be joined by Peter Roberts. We'll take a deeper look into what goes into your cup of coffee. We'll explore the vast inequities that exist between grower and retailer. We'll talk about how historical movements like colonialism and slavery have shaped the origins of this industry and what role climate change and the pandemic are playing today. We'll also delve into how consumers, roasters, and retailers can work together to balance the scales. Peter is a professor of organization and management and academic director of specialty coffee programs at Guizueta Business School. His work centers on social entrepreneurs and accelerators, micro-business development, and the global specialty coffee industry. He has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Bloomberg, Food and Wine, and Salon. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Let's start with the magnitude of the coffee industry. In 2019, roughly two-thirds of American adults drank coffee every day. Over the past 30 years, the specialty coffee market has expanded exponentially and now accounts for up to 40% of all coffee consumed. In 2019, the coffee market was valued at more than $102 billion. The global coffee industry has always been characterized by stark contrasts. Retailers, roasters, and importers often do very well, while those who grow coffee struggle to break even. Can you share how this disparity has deepened and the impact of this divide on the industry as a whole? Yeah, you've done a, a nice job articulating a couple of things. Uh, um, the, the general importance of coffee in our lives as consumers, but also 25 million families around the world are responsible for growing coffee. So um, its economic and social impacts are broad and deep. We're in the midst of a, of a coffee class here at Emory, and we're, we're talking about the origins of the industry right now. And uh, it's always very eye-opening to folks you know, when you know, they see all of the exciting things that are happening you know, on the retail side to remind folks that this, this industry only exists um, because of colonialism and slavery. Um, in fact, some people say it's kind of the prototypical industry if you want to understand the immediate and longer-term effects of colonialism and slavery. It's, um, you know, it's one of those things where sort of a, a very positive front end masks a very problematic back end. And, you know, the sad part is people can look back to the, the 17 and 1800s and say, oh, I'm really glad that we're past that. Uh, but there's a lot of things um, in terms of the, the economics of the global coffee industry where we still have shadow prices for land in coffee-growing communities is close to zero. We don't value labor right, in coffee-growing communities. We assume that the expectations of young people on coffee farms is to, to barely get out of poverty. We have a lot of residue um, from, this, from this long history. And um, the good news is, is we're working with a lot of really, really cool organizations and individuals that recognize a problem and I think are, are hopefully going to be you know, seeds for a solution. You're talking a lot about history. So can you walk us through the evolution of the coffee industry, um, how historical movements like colonialism and slavery have played a part in shaping where we are today? Yeah, the, I mean, the deep history is the sort of this merging of agriculture and culture. 
and it's fascinating, and it's probably well past the scope, uh, uh, you know, of this of this conversation. Um, you know, but what it led to is, for all kinds of reasons, as it became cooler and cooler and more and more interesting to drink coffee and to be in coffee shops, um, sort of the economics of coffee sort of take over the culture of coffee. And so, you know, we, we know that, you know, it was founded on the back of uh, Europe needed inordinate amounts of coffee. The United States needed inordinate amounts of coffee. Um, so it was grown not naturally in Central and South America, um, but, you know, plants were, were brought from Africa. People were brought from Africa. People were displaced in Central and South America, so we could we could create a supply. In about the late 1800s, it became sort of no longer in fashion to be kind of formally slave-owning and formally colonialist. Um, and that's about the time that global futures markets, you know, kick in. And so it became a very lucrative way for, you know, folks working kind of from the consuming end through the middlemen, um, you know, to make sure that there was an economics that sort of saw that coffee prices, at least green prices, stayed relatively, quote-unquote, reasonable, um, and it was still extremely lucrative, you know, to be on the, the roasting and selling end of coffee. Uh, and that persisted. A lot of consolidation uh, in the global industry. You know, if you sort of think about major, major brands like Folgers and Maxwell House, and, um, you know, that sort of dominated what they call the first wave of coffee, very lucrative on, on some terms. And then in comes the Pete's and the Starbucks and the Caribou's to set up the second wave of coffee. And anybody who follows the finances of a company like Starbucks knows that that's also, you know, very lucrative. Um, and then for the for the genuine aficionado, there's just this massive movement, right, of really small, micro-lot-oriented direct trade roasters, which they call the third wave of coffee. And um, I always tell the example of, uh, of a blue bottle. Uh, I think at the time that they were, were bought by Nestle, uh, I think they were valued at something like three or $400 million for 24 shops. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's lucrative on one side, always has been. But since the very beginning, if you would have told exactly the same story from the producing side, for the last three-ish harvests, most coffee producers in the world still don't cover the cost of production. And so it's, uh, it's, it's deeply problematic. Talking about growing coffee, it's a, it's a difficult process and it's hard work. So can you talk about the process that coffee goes through from bean to cup? It's, it's almost better if you go cup backwards, right? Because most people kind of, they, you know, they understand everything that goes into their cup. And if they're drinking it outside of the home, they sort of get the, they get the shiny coffee shop and they get the barista. And they sort of assume that there's sort of this raw input called coffee, but all the magic it happens in a coffee store um, or coffee shop. Uh, when we take students to origin or we talk about this, you know, they have to be reminded that, um, you know, before coffee is roasted, it's a bean. Before it's a bean, it's a cherry. Before it's a cherry, it's on shrubs. Before the shrub can become a shrub, it needs to be planted and taken care of for three to four years. So there's three to four years worth of intensive work um, that happens. And in the good old days, it was relatively straightforward because people didn't care about quality. Uh, but now if you watch the people that work on farms, that work, work in beneficios, um, it's just crazy kind of how much skill and talent and work and time, you know, goes into the production of coffee. Uh, so whenever we see these, you know, prices like uh, when the C price was down around a dollar, you had to sort of remind people that something like 25 sets of hands that worked in countries like Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, um, 25 sets of hands get, have to get paid out of that dollar or dollar 25 a pound. And, uh, and so once you sort of appreciate sort of all of the work and all of the risk that happens sort of on the, on the other side of the ocean, 
then it just really opens your eyes and says, wow, just the, the barista just does the finishing work, right? But most of the heavy lifting is done uh, in coffee-producing countries. I read somewhere that often the growers will get somewhere around a dollar, but then Starbucks turns around and, and sells that same coffee for 12 So just puts it into perspective. We actually, we have, uh, we have some data that we collect and uh, where we sort of track retail prices. And, you know, $15 to $20 for a, a pound of coffee on the retail end is, is reasonable in the world of specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the median price in our transaction guide was uh, $2.60. A pound, and that would be considered a good price. And so, you know, that contrast, that 10%, oof, that's, uh, that's hard to understand. The coffee we drink every day is impacted by so many external forces. Can you speak to the threat of climate change on coffee growing and the industry as a whole? Yeah, it's, it's, it is scaring everybody. Um, the people that are kind of most concerned, um, when we started going to Nicaragua, it would have been about 10 or 12 years ago, um, they used to talk about you can almost set your watch by when the weather changed. When the weather changed from wet to dry, it was time to pick coffee. And it was, it was almost ritualistic. Um, in the short time since I've been doing this, um, weather is extremely variable now. And it, it's really, really hard for farmers when it's wet during harvest season. It's really, really hard when the, um, when the kind of, you know, coffee is, especially Arabica coffee, it's, it's a little bit on the fickle side. Um, it likes kind of its comfort zones, and climate change is definitely um, kind of making the places we currently grow great coffee um, marginalized and, you know, soon ineffective. Um, I think we, uh, there was one report that suggested that 60 to 70 percent of the land that currently grows coffee might become ill-suited to coffee in the next 20 years. Um, and the, you know, so for those of us who like drinking awesome coffees from different places, you know, we're worried about how and where we're going to get our coffee. But the people who grow it, uh, we talk in class, there, there's, it's really, really hard to think about economic and social mobility when you've had no resources. And uh, so those prices that we talked about do not allow you to have money set aside for a rainy day, do not allow you to move one mountain over a little bit up. Um, and there's some organizations that care an awful lot about things like Canopy that says, I don't want you to move you know, one mountain over and, you know, and, and 300 meters up because that's, that's virgin forest. Um, so I, I think that there, there's a lot of people who are concerned that if we don't get to this idea of valuing the work that goes into coffee, paying the people that do the work, accounting for some of the investment and risk, um, that not only right, do we have more of the hardships that we currently have, but we're not going to have coffee you know, in 10 or 20 years. When you think about the countries that are being impacted by climate change, how much does coffee impact their local economies? Most of the places that we work, um, first, second, or third, you know, in terms of you know overall export revenues. But it's, you got to break it down. The places where coffee is grown, you know, tends to be kind of agriculture, a little bit more rural. Um, so usually, what you talk about is if if you have um, planted and oriented. You know, your rural communities to growing and selling coffee, um, there's not a whole lot of outside options you know, for those kind of folks. So it becomes the thing that you do. And then the economy is supposed to build around your core industry. So I would say that you know, if you look at those 20, 25 million families, small plot holders um, working in coffee around the world, it's kind of like you know, coffee or nothing. And, and when you look at it, it is one of those things. And even the people that grow coffee that have been marginalized for a good long time, there's this underlying set of optimism because people know that we pay a lot for coffee. So this isn't one of those sectors where I don't know what to do, no one's interested in it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a place, you know, the $15, $20 for a bag of coffee, the $4.50 for a latte, 
you know, if you sort of translate that backwards, the fact that we can't put resources right on farms and in growing communities so that people can have you know decent livelihoods, they can thrive, and then they can also kind of look ahead to an unsure future and invest right into either climate change adaptation, making sure that I'm you know that I'm able to continue farming, but also there's a there's an awful lot there if if you look at how we do farm and how we could farm. Um, those that know anything about coffee know that the concept of shade-grown coffee usually connotes that's better coffee, right? So if we can get away from sort of traditional or sort of, you know, more conventional agriculture and back to growing coffee in forests, then you're also reforesting these places. So when we work with folks at the Nature Conservancy, they're very excited about the idea. If we can figure out how to pay folks for growing excellent coffee the right way, then there's this built-in incentive for people to reforest. And so not only are you kind of handling the adaptation side, you're also contributing to mitigation as well. What about the pandemic? How has COVID-19 impacted buying patterns, growers, and the industry overall? It's like the rest of us. The initial shock was just that. Like, you know, as when you think about specialty coffee and you think about, well, we're not allowed to go into coffee shops anymore. You have all of the, you know, what happens in our street corners kind of here in the United States, North America and Europe. And all of the hardships you think as you shutter things and people get, um, you know, get displaced. You know, that exactly the same thing happens on farms, you know, moving forward. Then there's this worry of, well, you know, if we kind of, oh, if we go back to drinking coffee at home, then the places where we tend to drink better coffee and pay more for it are in coffee shops. When we go home, we tend to go to the old ways of, you know, coffee with a push of a button or will it be Folgers or Maxwell House? So are we going to start drinking less coffee and less valued coffee? Also, if we start buying all our coffee in grocery stores, um, anyone that knows economics says, you know, when there's more consolidation on the buying side, there's more buyer power, producers worry about that. So in the beginning, there was all kinds of worry. You confound that with, um, you know, things that, that they surprise you until you think about it. Coffee needs containers to move. The whole, like, who would have thought that you'd learn an awful lot about how shipping containers move around the world just by focusing on coffee? But if you don't have inbound containers coming out of Asian markets, you don't have containers. And coffee that sits around for a good long while, it's not as good you know, as if it moves in a timely fashion. So you have all of these things of, you know, from the farm, can we, can we get the workers onto the farm and work safely? Can we get the coffee out of the country? Can we move it? Right. And then you kind of con, you know, conflate that with, uh, well, who's going to buy it and at what prices? Mm-hmm. So that, that, was, that was like the, the worry over most of the year. Um, a couple of silver linings, um, subscription services. Once you go home and if you really miss good coffee and you start thinking, well, if I actually make it myself, right, it's not good for the storefront economics. But from the producer's perspective, if I'm buying more, better coffee to brew at home, then maybe I'm spending a bit more for coffee. And so subscription services and online sales at especially shops did fairly well as people kind of hunkered down a bit. But all kinds of uncertainty still you know, out there in terms of uh, how the specialty coffee industry is going to settle down. Over the years, we've seen lots of movements around things like fair trade and direct trade. Can you speak to the progress these movements have helped drive, their flaws, and what we can learn as we work to create a more equitable system. The thing you learn from all of these movements is that at any given point in time, there have been a lot of individuals and organizations that care a lot. Right? And what they're pretty good at is you look at the most proximate pro- problem, the one that's right in front of you. So fair trade, you know, all of, when we just cared about cost, everybody kind of shops to push prices down. And when I talk about this, I always say people don't squeeze farmers because they want to. 
they just squeeze farmers because they can. And so, so when someone steps in and goes, there has got to be a ceiling, right, that you just can't keep pushing prices down. And fair trade has, did a remarkable job, you know, making sure that people understood the problem and that there was this mechanism where folks could actually sort of put kind of a, a, a lower bound on what you'd pay folks for good coffee. Organics had the same sort of idea, you know, is that once you understand how coffee could be produced and how it is produced, then that is sort of awareness around kind of using better practices that are better for the, for the planet, better for climate, but also better for workers. Uh, the challenge for a lot of these programs is as they roll is this unbalanced marketplace always puts downward pressure right, on what the farmer gets. And so something like a fair trade program, it's always like in order to get more and more people to buy fair trade, there's this subtle pressure to keep the fair trade minimum prices low. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a weird way, like there's the good people are trying to push up, markets pushing down. Um, so we still haven't figured out this way to go, mm, I think what we need is like a larger share of what we spend on coffee, right, to continue to flow back to coffee producing countries. Organics is the same way, people will buy it, and they'll look for it, but we don't always know exactly kind of how to get people to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Now, the good news is, and the work that we're doing right now, all of these organizations like Fair Trade, Rainforest Alliance, Smithsonian's Bird Friendly you know, certifications, they know that that's, that's the thing that we have to keep working on is, you know, these things do more of what they were intended to do, right? If we can get the folks on the buying side to say, listen, it's not tick a box, pay what you used to pay, but it's find out kind of what is it worth to a consumer or potential consumer, you know, to know that you're organic, to know that you're treating people well, to know that you're bird friendly. And so I think that's, that's the next layer in the world of specialty is not getting folks to recognize it and do it, but getting folks to pay for it. Well, that's a good segue. More and more people are now engaging in conscious consumerism, but it's difficult. You go to the grocery store, you see a label that says sustainable, green, organic. What should we be looking for, and how can we evaluate the purchases we make with purpose in mind? So this question's the hardest for me, because I'm. it's not that I'm cynical. Um, I just don't think that the consumer is as central in this story as we like to think. And I always remind people, like, what you really want, first and foremost, is get more people more excited about paying more money for coffee. And, and I think if you think about this, I spent a long time looking at the wine industry. And we're already really good at that, right? We spend a lot of money on a glass of wine in a restaurant. We spend a lot of money for a bottle of wine, right, in a bottle shop. Um, so the consumer kind of needs to have that sort of that uplifting part. And if we need them to go and sort of almost be social or economic or environmental auditors when they shop, first of all, it's putting way, way too much pressure on them you know, at the time. Um, and it's, it's, it also just, it's a big old downer, right? So I think what you need to do is you need to get folks kind of to appreciate the better parts of coffee. You appreciate good quality coffee, appreciate a really good farm story. Um, but then the fulcrum shifts, and if you ultimately want to get producers paid, it's not a consumer thing anymore, right? So we've actually increased dramatically the amount of money we spend on coffee in the last 30 years. In real terms, the New York Sea price is lower now than it was 30 years ago. Uh, so this idea that, oh, we have to get consumers to pay more, consumers have been paying more for the things that producers do. But we haven't figured out how to enable and empower producers to recognize their value and then to effectively negotiate you know, better prices. And um, it doesn't mean that the problem is remotely easier than if it was a consumer problem. Um, but I think we're addressing the consumer problem and we'll continue to address 
You know, there was a time when somebody would have mocked in the last 10 years, 450 for a latte at Starbucks. Are you kidding? Now ask any kid in college, would you pay for your drink? Four bucks. Right, and this kind of stuff. So, so they are paying for it. Mm -hmm. right? But we have this weird thing on the consumer side. Oh, we need to get you to pay a little bit more so that the farmer gets paid. They're buying coffee, right? And so that money should go in appropriate terms and appropriate ratios back to producers. Back in the 40s, the producers, producing countries took home about 40% of what we pay for coffee. Now it's less than 10. Mm -hmm. um, so this, in my mind, that's prima facie evidence that the problem is not with you know waking up consumers the problem is with empowering producers what steps do retailers and roasters need to take and are there any bright spots of individuals and organizations driving change yeah. um, so when we started our work you know here at Emory about 10 years ago um, when a story just seems so noxious from far away you just you're kind of almost semi-excitedly waiting to meet the villains mm -hmm. Right? There are no villains in coffee. There's just so many awesome people in coffee. When I look at, you know, the, there's a transparency movement right now. People who kind of understand that markets will work a lot better, both in the short term and the long term, if we all work on the same information and it's better information. So there's roasters that basically sign on to a pledge and agree to be more transparent. We just served Onyx coffee in our class, you know, come Monday. Onyx is awesome. Like they literally go and they tell you everything about the producer, including what they paid. Um, so folks like Onyx, like I Wonder State, Counterculture is amazing, um, Intelligentsia, Stumptown, and there's 90 plus um, roasters, importers, and exporters that work with us in our transaction guide program. And they're, they are the bright spots. And they know that you can have a kind of a wonderful, viable, growing, thriving business that is basically built on the back of farmers also having wonderful, sustainable, thriving businesses as well. So. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's some big players, right, that that their their bottom line and their stock prices look an awful lot better if you can kind of like, you know, take 25 cents a pound off of, you know, what you pay producers. Um, but there's an awful lot of folks that are kind of going, we got to work the other direction. You mentioned your transaction guide, and it's a guide that empowers growers by showing them the prices paid for specialty coffee. Can you tell us about this, what role it has been playing in the industry, and your hopes for the future? I was at a specialty coffee association meeting once, and uh, um, everybody was, it was in the middle of a price crisis. We're not paying coffee farmers enough. And uh, in the coffee industry, especially the specialty coffee industry, you vilify the New York Sea price. So it's that futures price, and it's commodity traders, and it's the one that, you know, it wallowed down around a dollar a pound. You know, for a while. And some guy stood up in this thing, and he was, he was very courageous because he talked about how I understand why people don't like the New York Sea price, but I need it, right? Because I need to know whether the prices I'm paying are, are good or bad. I don't want to look like a fool. Um, and there was a bit of a kind of a calm in the room, and, uh, and I, you know, had a chance to respond. And I said, I think you're absolutely right. The, the world needs reference prices. We don't know what things are worth unless we have a chance to compare them, right, to what people have paid recently. So we do need a reference price. We just have the wrong one. Um, so, the, you know, the challenge in the industry, even the specialty industry, is the only green price that people would ever track was the New York seat price. And so you'd, you'd try all these machinations to make sure that we adjust it, uh, add a differential here, but that the core of it, pricing is still, for specialty coffee, still following this very low and very volatile commodity price. Mm -hmm. And so we looked into it, and, you know, people would ask me, well, do you have a solution? I said, better reference prices. What would you do? And I said, I Ideally, you would have everyone that bought specialty coffee last year gather that information together, put it into tables, so people next year could find out what a low, a medium, and an average price was for different kinds of coffee this year. 
And they would say, why, why don't you do that? And I said, because the people who have the information won't share it. And, uh, and that's when I met Chad Trevick, and he said, I think they would. And, uh, and so we basically signed non-disclosure agreements and all these kind of the non-trivial buyers of specialty coffee, they donate their data to us, we organize them, and we create kind of like the Kelly Blue Book for specialty coffee. Um, it's impacts, now instead of saying, oh, the C price is $1.09 or the C price is $1.80. Um, we actually can say, you can put that aside and you could look at references prices th that are more relevant. Mm -hmm. And um, so in the short run, I think it gives people a little bit of hope that there can be an alternative. And the heavy lifting moving forward is, is if you could say, well, if a producer steps out of commodity and into specialty, and everybody knows when you're buying a specialty grade coffee versus a commodity grade coffee, you should step away from the buying practices of commodity and step into this world and saying, okay, a 25th percentile looks like this, a 50th percentile price looks like this, a decent price, 75th percentile looks like this. And, and buyers and sellers can work within those ranges. And then the people that want to look and say, some of those ranges are just too low. Right? There's, a, there's an avenue for you know, policymakers and advocates right, to say, um, I think we have to look at the prices we're paying for containers of 8081 coffee because it doesn't seem to cover cost of production. And so we're contributing to all those conversations as well. How does production look different for specialty coffee? Like, what are some of the intensive procedures? So, so if you can just close your eyes for a minute, imagine kind of a, a forest of coffee shrubs. Um, you know, uh, exchange grade coffee or uh, com, you know, commercial coffee, commodity coffee, it has fairly low standards for quality. So you can kind of just imagine for the most part, as long as you sweep through and pick nothing but coffee, um, and you, you know, you're allowed a lot more defects or whatever, so you can kind of gather it all together with less work, right? And so all of the processing, et cetera, you don't worry about quality. Um, if I then switch that over and say, I need, to get, I need this container of coffee to be an 81, which means that someone's actually cupping it and they're, they're scrutinizing all of its elements. So now all of a sudden, well, you can't have any green coffee in that because that's gonna wreck its flavor profile. And there's a bunch of things that you can't do. So now you have to pick right, and now you have to process right, and now you have to sort multiple times. So all those steps, so when somebody at the end of the day, they're not buying a container of commercial coffee, they're saying, this is the container I want, it better be this good when I get it. Mm -hmm. uh, so once we sort of have that sort of idea of grabbing onto a lot of coffee and having quality expectations, we're now in this world of specialty. And then all of that extra work right, needs to be paid for. You also have a pretty transformational program at Guisweta called Grounds for Empowerment. This program provides women specialty coffee farmers with business knowledge and market connections to help them reach their full potential. Can you share more about this, why you're focusing on women, and how students are involved? Um, that's a program that I'm extremely proud of in terms of the way it's evolved. Um, it started because the, the folks in our transaction guide program, so these are the, you know, the roasters, the importers, the exporters that buy, they would say things like, um, you shouldn't spend so much time sharing this information with us because we kind of get it. Right. You might surprise us a little bit, but we kind of get it. We need to find a way to make sure that information gets to, to producing countries. And, um, and so we started with this idea, you know, you know here at Goizueta, we've always run these Start Me programs where we work, work with entrepreneurs. So the idea is that we would build this, you know, this workshop around new notions of how much coffee is worth. And so, you know, get small groups together, get them interacting with experienced industry mentors, get people to cup their coffee so they know what they're selling, have sessions where they look at transaction guides and talk about where it's worth, and then begin conversations about how you move from being a commercial coffee, 
you know, seller to a specialty coffee seller. So, um, yeah, where, where do students come into all this? Well, we need support. We've got, a, we've got a bunch of folks who are like sort of half step removed from our sort of typical kind of educational environment. So what we do is we take um, bilingual students, originally just here at Emory, but now we're working with students who are in Central America and we're working with multiple universities across North America. So we need a cadre of bilingual students that can sort of help kind of guide these women kind of into and through Things at the end of the day won't be all that complicated, but the beginning can seem a little daunting. Mm -hmm. um, and so as an artifact of that, we end up, we're doing this right now, we end up with this Friday mornings where we've got 35, 40 students, 35, 40 women, a bunch of industry mentors, all on Zoom channels working together. And it's really, really great energy. Yeah, so that's uh, why women? Um, we can't do nearly as much of this work as we want to. Um, so if you're going to kind of find a reason to sort of say, like, why would you then lean into women? Well, the sad part about gender issues in general is no matter where you are, there's that general rule of thumb is best case scenario. You get 60 to 70 percent of what the guys get. So we thought if you're sort of extra marginalized you know, because of gender, why don't we sort of move past the first people we meet and find these women farmers? And there's a lot of women that work coffee farms. They just have never really been allowed to be actively involved right, in the commercial side of things. And so if we're going to reformulate networks and reformulate, you know, um, how we think and understand coffee, then why don't we go and make these women sort of the leaders of the movement? Mm -hmm. um, we're, we hope to, you know, get the resources. We'll, we'll, next, we'll work with the young farmers. Um, and there's a lot of awesome guys out there with a little bit of why not me, and we're going to go, uh, you know, we're going to get there. Eventually, if we're going to basically have this market-based movement, you know, everyone's got to be able to sit down and say, what do you got? What's it worth? Mm -hmm. Right. And how do we introduce you to folks that allow you to have better conversations right, about buying your coffee? I'm sure you've made some deep connections over the years. Are there any stories you'd like to share about the people impacted by the program? The first time we ran a program in Guatemala, um, so there was 12 women producers. Um, one of the women in the room, she's from a very remote you know, part of, uh, part of the country. I think, if I recall, first time she'd ever been to the capital. Um, part of the exercises after the first day, kind of, we got there. We were doing this in person. It was before COVID. So her coffee, there's kind of a buzz in the room because one of these coffees was just phenomenal. And so one of these coffees ends up cupping around 89 points, which sort of is a coffee that might actually enter national competitions for best coffee. Um, and then we kind of find out looking at her economics, looking at her um, uh, revenues and expenses the previous year. The previous year, she got, I think, $1.09 a pound. Right, on average for her coffee. And this is coffee that I have actually purchased this coffee in North America at about $26 for a 12 ounce bag. Wow. Um, but the nice thing about that program is once that recognition, we're working with mentors, word gets out, and now she's selling both um, through a local roaster, but also through an importer kind of into the US, and just with probably a 2X to 3X you know, with every passing year kind of amount of money for the coffee. And, uh, and that's the sort of thing when you realize what you need for programs like this is you need the, the low-hanging fruit, like the people who are obviously being ripped off, to be able to kind of stand up and kind of go, hey, with just a little bit more of an understanding of what you have and how this works, um, you can become a role model for people around you. So that was one. And the other one, just uh, I, we just had class, um, and we talked about race and coffee, and Phyllis Johnson, BD Imports, so she works out of Atlanta as well. And she introduced me and her students to, um, she's interested in race and coffee and talking about black farmers in Brazil. And she introduced us, first time she brought um, uh, black producers. Um, she herself is an importer, and then we actually had a, a coffee roaster you know, from here in the U.S. that basically roasted the coffee and talked about this idea of, um, like, you know, five years ago, 
all this family was doing was slogging to make it. A little bit of a connection down there and a little bit more of, a, of an opening. In this particular case, you know, black roaster, black importer, looking to create opportunities you know, for black farmers. She's not only selling her coffee at much more favorable terms, she's kind of like a local celebrity and like a local role model. And just, just like this, you take these two young women, right, who, you know, said you got so much potential, but you're this far away from it. Then the, the programs, well, the folks like Phyllis and the programs like Grounds for Empowerment, they're not, they're not heroic in the sense that, oh my goodness, there's so much work to be done. They just sort of see where those paths are almost connecting and said, so can we create more positive stories? And then, and then the challenge is, is you know, can you create so many of those stories that they become kind of dull? Um, and that's kind of what we're hoping to do next. <laughs> it sounds really bad. We're hoping to make all the stories kind of dull. <laughs> I love it. Well, you're obviously passionate about coffee. So what are you drinking right now? Drink a lot, Annie. So, uh, so this is um, the, 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 the bitter sweetness, mostly bitterness of, uh, of COVID. Is, uh, so last time I was in Central America, last time I was in a coffee-producing country, we, we had just finished up a Grounds for Empowerment program in El Salvador. Um, and doing that, whenever I'm in El Salvador, I meet our, our friends over at Sea Cafe who grow and process amazing coffees. And we stopped in and saw Victor, who's the twice national champion barista you know, out of El Salvador, runs the biscuit factory. And uh, Victor actually on a project kind of works with Finca La Fanny, which is Sea Cafe, excellent coffee, extremely well roasted. And then Giselle, who works with me, Grounds for Empowerment, last trip up, she actually brought you know, kind of bags of this. So I'm actually sort of drinking coffee that was uh, grown on a farm that I know, processed by people that I know, roasted by a good friend. Um, and if anybody kind of, you know, wants to talk about how, you know, can your life be made better by paying a little bit more attention to something, um, coffee always tastes better when you know and appreciate the story that goes behind it. And so even if you don't get those personal kind of experiences, like the, the onyx that we're drinking now is out of Costa Rica, but they tell you so much about where the coffee's coming from mm -hmm. um, that you kind of go in like, not only do I love the coffee, I love the coffee. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. I feel very, very fortunate to have been exposed to this part of the world. Coffee country is beautiful. I miss taking students, mm -hmm. you know, kind of down there, and I, I miss connecting kind of with the folks who are, uh, you know, fighting the good fight in producing countries. So, yeah, it's all good. When when the pandemic gets to a more manageable state, are you planning to continue yeah. the trips with students? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're hoping right now is that, so if you imagine 35 to 40 students per semester that gather on Zoom and connect with coffee producers, and they work with them kind of understanding their stories and helping tell their stories, um, I, I want at the end of every semester to have kind of a capstone travel experience. Uh, countries, when you're brought into a country and introduced by someone that you know and have worked with, and you got a bunch of people lined up ready to take you to different coffee farms around Guatemala and El Salvador, um, it's, it, it's just an awesome way to sort of seal the deal in terms of sort of creating these, these cultural experience. But also, I mean, there is there's mutual beneficiality Right. And this is that, you know, the coffee producers know that they're not alone. Coffee consumers know that there are coffee producers. Uh, people who are drinking ordinary coffee can be a little sad and looking forward to extraordinary coffee. Um, but it's also, it's not nearly as, um, you know, poncy and privileged as you'd imagine, right? There's, there's folks that grow all kinds of different coffee. So if you don't, you don't necessarily want to spend the $30 a bag and have the pinky up to be, to be challenged with adjectives. There's a lot of really, really awesome people that grow you know, good but not exquisite, you know, coffees. And so all these connections to be made and what we just need to force out 
right, is, you know, stuff that sort of lacks attention and lacks a story and lacks equity and lacks sustainability because mm -hmm. uh, we just shouldn't be drinking it. You have an interesting background and focus. What drives you to do this work and what gives you hope for the future? The, the driving part is meeting people that sort of that have incorporated some notion of purpose and passion into everyday living. If I look at kind of where I was 10 years ago and where I am now, um, I have a much more rounded and balanced view of business and markets. Um, you know, I tell people, I said, I have a, a much greater appreciation for markets rather than the average market cheerleaders because there's so much power that's built into markets and they don't always do great things. And so um, I, I think the sort of a level of awareness and openness is intellectually just extremely rewarding. Um, but also, there's, you, you, and, you, know, to, you have to get outside your comfort zone. You come back to it thinking more about the things that you care a lot about. Um, you know, not everyone gets to do that. That's a privilege. And um, so I was like, you know, told someone, I, I think about 10 or 15 years ago, I sort of realized that my problems were not the most interesting ones in the world. And other people had kind of much more interesting and much more challenging market-based problems. So instead of like me opening up a coffee shop, right, I'd actually rather kind of work with someone who's currently growing amazing coffee and say, can't we figure out Right, how to solve your problem because, you know, so much better, so much, and I'm better for it. Peter Roberts is a professor of organization and management and academic director of specialty coffee programs at Guisueta Business School. He joined today to talk about the coffee industry, past, present, and future, and how consumers, retailers, and roasters can contribute to a more equitable system. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much. For more information about the Guizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.